This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with David Saloy, author of All That Man Is. I love finding words that people have used in a way which makes me notice them in a good way. We'll be back with David Saloy in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we are simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, Reminder, Membership Matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest is David Saloy, author of London and the Southeast, The Innocent, Spring, and All That Man Is, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2016. Saloy was named Granta's Best Young Novelist in 2013. He lives in Budapest, and All That Man Is takes place in various locations around Europe. The tales in the book chronicle different men at various ages in life, from young boys in school to old men. 
This interview was recorded in 2016 before First Draft became a podcast. We began with Soloy describing his work, All That Man Is. First of all, I'm very, I feel very strongly that it's not a collection of stories as such. I mean, it, it, I feel, I mean, there are obvious problems with calling it a novel, but I feel that whatever you call it, it's a, it's a unified thing. It's, it's one work. It's not a collection of smaller works that just happen to be packaged together in one volume. Um, so that's, I guess that's, that's one, one thing that I, I quite feel strongly about. I was trying to, by having these stories about different characters rather than about one character, progressively older, which would have been another obvious way of doing it. I never really considered writing it about one character, but looking, you know, thinking about that um, decision, it, I suppose it's partly that I wanted to write a book that had a sort of universality to it or that somehow wasn't restricted to just one person's experience and writing about these different characters would create that impression more than if you were just writing about one character it would allow you to to bring in a, a wider range of experience probably than just writing about one character um it would sort of just sort of write some somehow a slightly more impersonal approach to writing about life um writing about a novel with one central character or a small group of central characters who who sort of interact with each other um that that, that didn't appeal to me somehow i mean i i yeah i i didn't really want to do that the i i was i've said before and i was somewhat sort of disillusioned with the idea of of writing that sort of book at that point in my life um which was about five years ago now four or five years ago and uh, and so yeah, the idea of writing this this book that was made up of separate segments in that way um, appealed to me. But it was also very important to me that the separate segments should very much form a, a strong, coherent whole. Um, and so that the progressively older characters, that sort of very that scheme, if you like, was 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 the way that I, I hoped to do that. Was there something specific at all nagging at you or that you wanted to say or explore or questions you had about the lives of men from about college age to their 70s? I mean, yeah. I mean, the, 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 my sort of what I would say is the subject of the, the main theme of the book is, is time and the passing of time and aging and mortality. And... Um, those were things which were things that I wanted to write about at that point. And I, I felt, I mean, I was, when I started writing the book, I was in you know, my late thirties of 38, 39, when I started writing the book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think at that age, it's quite common to start to, if you like, start to see your life as a single as a single thing, as you know, your your whole your life as a whole starts to sort of come into view in a way that it just hadn't before. Um, and yeah, so that the yes, I was very keen to capture that feeling, obviously, and I, I hope that the way the book operates, it it does manage to do that on some level. In the second story of the book, you have a story with a young man named Bernard. 
he wasn't really going anywhere with his life. He didn't go to university. And so he has his sort of final opportunity for a job with his uncle. But he gets sacked because he's pretty apathetic at work. And in the meantime, he had this holiday planned with a friend of his to go to Cyprus. And he was sort of looked up to this friend. But then his friend failed an exam at university and couldn't go. So Bernard was going on his own. And that was sort of the first shock to him is that, what I'm such a loser for going on a vacation alone. I'm wondering if you can talk about this feeling and then we'll talk about what happens on his vacation. Just, I guess, just that he, he was sort of already, he already paid for it. He was, you know, he, he, he hesitates before going, but his friend who can't go encourages him to go and he just, he just sort of goes. Um, but he goes with a certain amount of trepidation. He, this is the first time he's traveled Certainly the first time he's traveled on his own, possibly the first time he's really traveled at all. Um, and uh, yeah, so so he goes and it is, a, yeah, there is a sense that he's doing something um, slightly courageous in, in going, on, going on this holiday on his own when his friend um, lets him down really and says that he can't go. Seems like it's the, some package deal that they bought that was really cheap and he gets there and he's not at the nice hotel. He's kind of off the beach and there's no pool and there's no shower and the food they have to microwave themselves. And he ha- has an attraction to a girl who he finds out later is with some other guy. And, you know, that's what he wants is he wants to have sex on his vacation. He's like, here I am. I'm young. I'm virile. I'm in Cyprus. I'm by myself. What else am I going to do? So he ends up befriending these two women staying at his hotel, who you describe basically as the mother being fat and the daughter being fatter. And I'm wondering if you could talk about his relationship with them. Well, I mean, as you say, he meets them when he, I mean, he he meets another girl um, before he meets them or or actually not because, as you say, they're staying at the hotel. But anyway, he, he meets another girl. Um, who he's interested in and who he has a, a nice little chat with um, in, a, in a restaurant in the morning. And he sort of sets up what he regards as a kind of date virtually or some kind of rendezvous anyway with her in a nightclub that evening. And then during the day, he just at the, at the poolside of, a, of another hotel, not the one where he's staying, he runs into these, this English mother and daughter and they just sort of get chatting and uh, he feels very kind of, relaxed around them because his 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 thoughts are really on this other girl who he who he'd met in the morning and was hoping to meet again in the evening so then he he as you say he then goes to the nightclub in the evening and uh finds finds the other girl already with somebody else um and so the next day he's he's kind of still depressed about that and again he just spends the day hanging out with this mother and daughter and drinking and chatting and so he sort of, yeah, I mean, his relationship with them, he it just sort of, um, it develops naturally. You know, he doesn't approach it with the sort of uh, sense of, of as, as with the other girl, clearly he was very much approaching it as a sort of mission. He, he wanted something very specific and was uh, and was after it. And he sort of, um, yeah, he, he, he spends a great deal of time and effort getting ready for his evening when he was going to meet the other girl. Um, and when he goes out with the, this mother and daughter, he spends absolutely no effort. So he's just he's just sort of, um, yeah, it's it's a more natural and organic situation where they just start spending some time together. And then um, the mother tells him that the daughter uh, is, rather likes him and uh, maybe he'd like to take her up to his room. And he's, he's initially flabbergasted by that. 
But uh, then he thinks, why not? He has basically a whole afternoon of sex with the daughter and is kind of blown away by it and, and realizes that he wants to have more and have it again. And, and so he's planning on it again, and then there's kind of a twist. He's waiting in his hotel room for, for uh, Charmian, the, the daughter of the, the mother and daughter, and then Sandra, the mother, knocks on his door and uh, asks if she can have a go. And again, he, he, his initial reaction is to be somewhat nonplussed, but then again, he thinks, why not? I thought it was so interesting because this young man who seemed to not succeed at anything in his day-to-day life found something that he really succeeded at at his on his vacation. Well, exactly. I mean, that that's I mean that that that's why I meant to say this the story. You know, that some people read that story as a sort of as a somewhat depressing story, like some of the others. But uh, no, I I agree with you absolutely. I I regard that story as very much uh, a a positive story really i mean it's um yeah he, he he is one of the characters in the book who sort of gets what he wants really i'm not sure what his sex life was like before but obviously sex is playing a prominent role now i assume he's going to go back a different person but do you think young men who are lost can find some sort of identity or, or solace in sex in addition to just the natural testosterone um well, I, I believe they can certainly find solace, um, and and Bernard in the story finds no doubt finds solace. I don't think he'd go back a different person though. I mean, he wouldn't. He was not like he'd kind of go back and go back and tell his uncle that he's ready to sort of succeed in business now. No, of course not. Nothing like that. Um, he may go back. You know, he may well go back more confident in his skin, feeling a bit better about himself. But he'd still be the same, fundamentally the same person. Chris John. Is that how you say his name? Yes. Christian yeah. is a, a Danish journalist at a, at a tabloid, and he discovers, well, his co-workers discover that the defense minister is having an affair with a married woman, and they decide that they're going to print the story. So what was the impetus of this story for you? What inspired this storyline, and can you talk about what you were exploring? It's the central story of the book. It's the fifth of nine segments of the book and uh, I wanted to write a story about a character who was essentially very much succeeding in his career at work and a character who was very absorbed in his career emotionally um, and for whom that had become one of the if perhaps the defining thing of who he is um and i yeah so i wanted to write about a character who was really um sort of going great guns professionally and uh right at the sort of height of his powers but of course you know the character that character had to be you know you just wouldn't be able to get an interesting story about someone being a, a great surgeon or some some sort of worthy career would would not have produced would be unlikely to produce the material for for an interesting story. So, um, or at least a, a story with a, a, with enough ambigu- ambiguity. I mean, obviously, I wanted the story to have some ambiguity. It couldn't just be a sort of isn't this guy great? End of story. Um, so I, I wanted him to have a career which had some moral ambiguity about it. Um, not too much. I didn't want him to be doing something which was obviously and straightforwardly heinous. Um, I wanted it to be sort of slightly gray. 
And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's how I end, ended up with the idea that he should be a journalist. And then obviously there was this big, um, while I was writing the book, there was this big phone hacking scandal in, in England, in Britain. And so that that was the sort of, you know, that, that obviously provided the, the, the plot material for the story. He didn't really have a moral conundrum about sort of exposing this defense minister who was somewhat his friend and really digging into his personal life and how how he was very firm that it was a matter of of national importance and maybe even national security. And and we see this, you know, in the papers every day. And I'm just wondering what, what you think about that. I, I wanted to calibrate it quite carefully, so I, I, I very deliberately made him almost, but obviously not quite, a friend of the guy. Um, the, the the newspaper for which he's the deputy editor is a sort of political ally of the guy, but on the other hand, the news like like all newspapers these days, it's in a it's in a fight for its life really, and anything which is going to boost circulation has to has to be has to be done. That that's the overriding concern. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to balance these various considerations against each other, and then have the the sort of the human relationship between the two men, um, you know, explore that a bit in the scenes they have together. Uh, and of course, the I, I think probably that the Christian comes across as as a cynical and unpleasant guy in the way that he. Clearly, when in terms of there's just never a moment when he even considers um, going the other way with it, and uh, you know, allowing his his friendship and um, his relationship with the guy in any way deflect him from what he needs to do as a professional. So, in your book, you did some interesting things in your stories or in the chapters where your point of view sometimes shifted like you had this you you often had maybe a close third person point of view where we're seeing the world through one of the characters but then maybe another character will come in and we see into their view for just a minute can you talk about this craft wise yeah yeah no no i mean yes i mean normally yeah that's right all the stories are told in that kind of close third person um, and I, yeah, sometimes it does move to the perspective of another character, particularly in the stories where this sort of there, there's there's a you know very important second, like in the first story, um, Ferdinand is almost as important a character as Simon. So while Simon's the central character in that story, particularly, I mean, you get you get quite a lot from Ferdinand's perspective. I think at various points. Um, and yeah, in, in other stories, something similar happens occasionally. Uh, I, I, yeah, I didn't really sort of plan those out. And actually, I have to say that sometimes I, I did go too far with that. And in the process of editing the book, um, my editors would uh, would sometimes, I mean, some of the material that was removed from the book was when I sort of jumped to sort of violently into someone else's perspective for, for no good reason. And they would say, is this really working here? And uh, and usually it wasn't, and we would cut it. So yeah, I mean, it, it it's th- that isn't something which I planned out that carefully. So one of the things I noticed um, that came up in a few of the stories were tarot cards. 
Yes. Yeah. No. Obviously. Well, that that is obviously deliberate. Yeah. It comes up in three of the stories. Um, the first, the fourth, and the seventh. So part of the reason for the tarot cards was just to sort of mark the book into three sort of triads. Um, but also obviously the idea of fate and uh, the sort of idea of life being something which is difficult to get under control, powers beyond our control. I don't believe in any sort of supernatural tarot power or anything like that. Um, but the Rider Waite deck, the famous Rider Waite deck, is is a very powerful little work of art, I think, just visually, as a work of visual art. It's extraordinary. The the cards, the cards in that particular deck, that design, um, are very, very powerful little graphic images, many of them um, expressing specific kind of, um, well, states of mind, I guess it would be the best way of putting it, um, or, or sort of life events. And, uh, and yes, yeah, so I, I, I am, I'm a fan almost more sort of aesthetically than anything else of that, of that tarot deck. And, uh, and that, I guess that's why I chose tarot cards specifically for, for that role in the book. I'm just curious about, you know, these stories take place all over Europe. And I'm wondering when you started a story, if you thought about the story intrinsically linked with the, with the location, like, did you just know, okay, I'm going to write a journalist story and it has to be in Denmark, or I'm going to write about these men who go to England with a prostitute and they have to be Hungarian. Like, how did you choose the countries? Uh, I mean, normally, I mean, for instance, in the, the second example, you mentioned the, the Hungarians going to England, that that was very, yeah, that, that there was no question other than that these guys would be Hungarian and uh, the country would, and they'd be going to London. Because that was, as I say, the first story that I wrote, and it was shortly after I'd moved to Hungary myself. So that sort of a story with a Hungarian end and a London end, that was very much part of the appeal for, of writing that story for me. Um, and in most of the other stories, the, the location is very important for me. Um, the Murray, the Scotsman, sort of washed up in Croatia. I know Croatia reasonably well, and those kind of inland Croatian towns can be rather bleak. So, again, it was very definitely that setting that I, I wanted. Um, the the Benar's Holiday Resort could have been anywhere around the Mediterranean, I suppose, because it's you know there are resorts like that everywhere. But that kind of resort was very important. Um, so and and in the final story, that very flat, rather melancholy landscape in northeastern Italy was sort of in very important part of the how the story felt for me as well. So mostly yes, mostly that's very important to me. And I did want to write a book that happened in many, many different European locations and countries. So to some extent, I had to, um, you know, I, I, for each story, there had to be a slightly different setting. Um, and some of them were very natural and sort of volunteered themselves. Um, and a couple of others I had to sort of think a bit more about and, and think of somewhere and do perhaps a bit more research or, or some research. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, the uh, the sense of place is, is extremely important to me. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? 
Yes, yes, I can. I'm going to read, and it's it's nice that we were just talking about place because I'm going to read a, a passage. It's it's a famous passage. I'm afraid it won't. It's not some sort of interesting thing I've unearthed. It's the first page or so of Bleak House um, by Dickens, and I, I it, it has influenced me. I, it's a, it's a passage which I first read many years ago. I mean, when I was probably a teenager studying English at school. And uh, it, yeah, it, it's it, it's descript- it's sense of place. It's very specific sense of, of and London specifically, which for me as a writer is the most important place, um, is is very very powerful. And that 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 the way that he has begun his book by establishing a powerful sense of place is something which which has definitely influenced me and my my taste in in literature really. Um, so I will, I will read it. London, Michaelmas term lately over and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall, implacable November weather, as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth. And it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus 40 feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Hoban Hill. Smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes, gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Dogs, indistinguishable in the mire. Horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers. Foot passengers, jostling one another's umbrellas in a general infection of ill temper and losing their foothold at street corners where tens of thousands of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if this day ever broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement and accumulating at compound interest. Fog everywhere, fog up the river where it flows among green aids and meadows, fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tiers of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Is there anything else that you want to say about that? I'm completely sort of in love with that that passage I've been have been for as long as I can remember. It's just the the this yeah, just the, the way the sense of extremely strong sense of place. And also I think the the way that he doesn't, you know, he he doesn't write in parts of that are not written in complete sentences. That's also something which is reminds me of, of some, you know, it's also influenced me perhaps. I mean that way of, of writing. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky or changed from the first draft or something that you like how it turned out? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to read a passage from uh, a book called, my first novel called London in the Southeast, um, which I chose because it it wasn't tricky. On, on the contrary, it, the interesting thing about it is that it came out sort of exactly as it as it stands in the final version and but even more than that it sort of it almost sort of altered the trajectory of the book um it it sort of i mean maybe after 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 reading it i can say more about it because that that will make more sense to do it that way and it is then in mid-january that he flirts one dark afternoon with the idea of becoming a tramp it seems to him as he lies on the couch nothing more than a logical extension of his failed plan to become a gardener, 
in as much as that had grown out of a wish to secede from sales, money, status. Well, if he wished to secede, why not do it properly? And lying on his back in the dim room, he experiences a surge of dark, fizzing excitement, a sudden twinkling sense of freedom. Part of the appeal, of course, is simply that it's possible, always possible. All he has to do is walk out and stay out. He can transform everything, his whole life, as simply as that. He will relinquish all his possessions except the clothes he is wearing and wander the streets seeking wisdom. His mind sparkles with excitement at the thought of this. He has recently started to take an interest in ascetic and anti-materialist figures. St. Francis of Assisi, Sundar Singh, Michael Landy, men who embody notions of success specifically opposed to the piling up of pelf. And as he muses on his perhaps quixotic understanding of their tenets, the idea of simply walking away from the burden of his financial and material problems seems irresistible. Why not? Why not just walk out and stay out? And with a sudden energetic movement, he sits up. He is upstairs sitting on the edge of the bed to tie his bootlaces when it starts to rain. So that's that passage. And um, as I say, it was written exactly as, as it's now stands. There was nothing was changed at all. Um, and it, it, the, the situation in the book at that point is that the central character is a former salesman who has lost his job in, in slightly sort of dramatic circumstances and uh, is wondering what to do with his life and is sort of thinking in terms of changing his life significantly and um but i i was at the time i was writing the book i was sort of just feeling my way with that idea a bit and that passage which did just sort of come out fully formed um really set the trajectory for the next section of the book um and really sort of clarified in my mind where the character was at the time and uh, and so it was interesting the way that the act of writing the actual words that go down on the page can have such a powerful sort of clarificatory effect on the writer's own own perception of the book where do you write nothing very interesting i'm afraid i just write at a desk in a room in a flat <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing I have two small children, so my problem is is not so much getting away from writing as uh, as finding as getting to writing, <laughs> finding uh, finding the time and the, the peace and the, the sort of quiet to to do that. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I think generally speaking, I show it to my agent first, but I don't show it to her until it's all you know until I'm I I, I mean I I don't. I, I don't show my work in, in sort of early stage work. Um, I, I'm very, I'm very sort of secretive about it until it's quite um, more basically until I can't really see any obvious way to improve it. Um, then, then I will send it. And usually the first person I send it to is my agent. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, it's well, that, that that's, that's, that's tough. Um, I don't, uh, I suppose 
I mean, obviously, I have, I have, especially you know, at the, the beginning, the London, the Southeast, the book from which I just read that passage was rejected um, in the usual way by lots of um, people before it was accepted. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's it's extremely, extremely dishonest. I mean, I don't know if you do. I mean, you just kind of keep banging your head against the the wall until. I don't know. I mean, I'm not very. I, I guess, in a way, rejection sometimes produces. After the initial kind of trauma, it produces an effect in me of just wanting to do better. Um, so yeah, I mean, that that might be a, a something positive to sort of take from it. But but generally speaking, it's it's a it's an unpleasant experience, which um, I, I don't I don't really know what advice to give. And what is your favorite word? Yeah, I thought this was an interesting question. I don't really have a favorite word per se. I mean, I, I, I haven't come up with anything, I'm afraid. I, I mean, it's really, it's words, the beauty of words is when they sit with other words and the kind of magic and the, the sort of alchemy of that. Um, and often, actually, it's words which are, are in, on their own, that are ugly or ungainly or boring words, which are put in a context where they suddenly become beautiful and powerful and that's almost the sort of greatest experience of, of sort of words for me I suppose I, I I love finding words that people have used in a way which makes me notice them in a good way you've been listening to first draft a dialogue on writing my guest was David Saloy author of all that man is if you like today's show check out my interview with Russell Banks about his short story collection a permanent member of the family You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey, I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.